Welcome to ADK After Hours. I'm Kieran Harris, producer of the show and owner of the biggest Beanie Baby collection in the world. Today's episode is the result of an experiment where uh, we wanted to test the question, can Rob Wiblin record a decent episode without prepping much at all? And uh, turns out he can. Though most of that credit should go to our two guests, Robert and Clay, who didn't really need Rob to steer the conversation in interesting directions. It's all about forecasting, and specifically forecasting the war between Russia and Ukraine. They get into their early predictions for the war, the performance of the Russian military, the risk of use of nuclear weapons, the evolution of the forecasting space, and much more. They don't pause to define common forecasting terms. Uh, One of the benefits of this feed is that we can be more comfortable with assuming prior knowledge. But as long as you have some interest in the war in Ukraine or in the risk of nuclear war, I think you'll probably find it engaging. And uh, this episode was recorded on the 27th of April, 2022. All right, here's Rob, Robert, and Clay. Today, I'm joined by Clay Grabard and Robert Denufu, two people who are heavily involved in the super forecasting scene and who have been tracking and writing a lot about the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine lately. We wanted to have a chat to learn about kind of how they are thinking about the invasion of Ukraine, how they make predictions in, in general. And I guess also learn a bit more about what is happening in the forecasting scene, which uh, from what I'm reading on Twitter seems to be having a bit of a renaissance at the moment. Uh, so thanks for joining both of you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, great to be here. Maybe let's just first do some quick introductions. Uh, Rob, yeah, what are you working on at the moment? What are you, what, what hats do you wear? So I am mostly wearing one single hat right now. I recently got a grant from the EA Infrastructure Fund to write a substack making forecasts about forecasting research. So that's pretty exciting. I've just sort of started that. I was going to launch a little bit later than I did, but it looked like there was going to be a war in Ukraine. So I like, I better, if I'm going to forecast this question, I better get a forecast out soon. So I've been doing that, uh, still trying to figure it out, but that takes most of my time. I also do still forecast for Good Judgment Inc., which is the sort of company that spun off of the original Good Judgment project in the, the DARPA tournament. Yeah. How did you get into this, into this whole kind of line of work? Well, it's funny because it wasn't really a line of work until recently. Hmm. So there, there has been kind of a renaissance in in forecasting, I think partly because there's a lot more funding interest in it. But it was never really, at least the kind of forecasting, judgmental forecasting that I do, was never really a job. As far as how I got into it, I've always kind of estimated the probability of things. I think I do it kind of as a neurotic hmm. response. If, I, if I'm anxious about something, I want a realistic estimate of how likely it is to happen. I would do it during like when my team was playing a basketball game in the playoffs or something. I'm trying to estimate the chances they have of winning or losing. It makes me feel calmer. But I, I started doing that. I, I won some money on some fantasy sports site, early fantasy sports site. So then when I saw they were doing this tournament, I think it was the third year I heard about it, I just joined the the tournament and did quite well in my first year, got invited to be, a, you know, was qualified as a super forecaster after that. And I've just kept doing it because it's fun. I guess it's fun and for me anyway, but also I find it really intellectually interesting. So now that I have an opportunity to actually do this sort of professionally, to write about it, uh, that's that's really exciting for me. Yeah, fantastic. It's really nice that you've gotten a, gotten a grant from the Effective Altruism Infrastructure Fund to so this the Substack your Substack is called Telling the Future, right? Uh, so yeah. it's tellingthefuture.substack.com. Yeah. yeah, um I've had a chance to read a bit of that today and it's it's good stuff. Listeners should should go check it out. Thank you. Um the Good Judgment Project, that's 
Tetlock's research group or that's right. competition group. That's back from the their IARPA research, right? When they were doing doing work for the intelligence community to figure out how they could predict things better. Yeah, that's right, IARPA. Yeah, so essentially what it was was they set out to figure out if anyone could produce good forecasts, forecasts that were substantially better than random uh, than throwing darts. And they essentially, originally, it was a bunch of different teams, but Tetlock's team kind of dominated. And his approach was just to find good forecasters. And there are some techniques you can use for figuring out who's a good forecaster in advance. But basically, they would find who consistently did well. And that created this whole idea of super forecasters. Uh, Some people are capable of consistently outperforming even subject matter experts who as a group aren't particularly good, even intelligence analysts with access to classified information. So that was the, that's been, I mean, that's the discovery, Tetlock's in a lot of stuff, but that's the thing he's known for. And it came out of that research. So I participated essentially as a lab rat in that. Yeah. And then I've been doing it ever since. So I guess uh, Tetlock and his group came up with this kind of term of art, super forecasters. I think that's, that's a title that they give or kind of a credential that they give to folks who consistently perform in the top 2% of their forecasting pool. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I believe that's right. I don't actually know how they, they do the standards of the credentials. Mm-hmm. They are originally came out of the government sponsored tournament. They still are qualifying people as super forecasters through their good judgment open, which is an open forecasting platform. And I don't know exactly how they do it. It is a trademark. It's the, the good judgment. The business has does quite well because they're the only ones who are allowed to call people that. <laughs> but in fact, there are a lot of good forecasters who have simply not been identified or given the credential yeah. at Metaculus and, and elsewhere. Um, so uh, I, I have the formal credential, but, but it, you know, as a theoretical term, they're just some people are, are better at forecasting or developed a skill for it. All right, yeah, Clay, uh, your turn. Um, what, uh, what are you working on these days? Yeah, so unlike Robert, I'm currently wearing two hats right now. Uh, on one hand, I'm a master's student at Oxford studying international relations, and I'm in my last year. So a lot of my time right now is going on to my thesis, which looks at geopolitical forecasting and the use of international relations theory. And then on the other side, I work with my co-founder, Andrew Eady, on baserate.io, where we, where we publish Global Guessing, which is a website where we do geopolitical forecasting on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, on the JCPOA, uh, doing our own forecasts, talking to forecasters, and aggregating crowd forecasts, which we've been doing a lot for Russia-Ukraine, whether it's predictions coming from websites like Metaculus, Good Judgment, and Hypermind, or aggregating signals that we find on Twitter. And then we also work on Crowd Money, which is our publication on prediction markets, which sort of takes this aspect of quantified forecasting and brings in market mechanics and real money into the equation as well. Yeah. How do you, how do you fund it? Is it kind of part of your academic, academic work or is it a passion project? So it started off very much as a passion project. I got into this idea of super forecasting because I took a course by Alan Defoe where he said, read the introduction to super forecasting. And I was like, this book is fantastic. This idea is incredible. As someone who's interested in, you know, scientific method and theory in the social sciences, it seemed just like uh, this really great technology and method that wasn't being used. And so I read the entire book. Then I shared it with Andrew Reedy because this was all during a lockdown. And we just started off like, let's just start making our own forecast to get better at it. Mm. And just over time, the practice of it is is really fun. 
it's really engaging in terms of like mental capacity and and the different skills that you have to use. And then over time, it sort of morphed into fitting into my academic work and waging a semi-long campaign to convince my advisor that forecasting research is something that actually I can do at Oxford, even if the student handbook maybe says it's not entirely allowed. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Very cool. How much time do you get to actually spend you know, researching specific questions that might be on one of these forecasting platforms to try to come up with a, a number and then and then sticking it in. Yeah. So for me, I, I think I take a different approach to forecasting than I think probably Robert does, because if you like forecast in the Good Judgment Project, you are being asked hundreds of questions every single year over multiple years. And so the amount of time you could spend on each question is quite limited. Personally, the way which I like to approach questions is really spending a lot of time on the forecast. Like for Russia, Ukraine, my initial forecast took hours, but towards the end, I was spending eight, nine hours a day, like forecasting the question, trying to find signals, trying to think of all the different possible worlds and, and the different factors that would make them open up or make them close and sort of change the probability. Um, and so spending a lot of time on task. And so that was like at the peak right now, as I'm working on my thesis, I probably spend two hours a day working on forecasting. And then, you know, I spend also a lot of time reading the academic literature. I think there's a lot of things useful for forecasting, like as a forecaster, you can get from reading it, but then also just thinking about it as this academic field and this intellectual pursuit, I find very interesting. And so I try to read all of that literature as well. So I, I know there's there's a whole bunch of different kind of platforms where people can contribute their their the forecast or the probability of of different events. I think Metaculus is the one that I see mentioned most often. But by that, are there other ones that people in the audience should have in mind? So if you're interested in geopolitical questions primarily, I think Good Judgment Open does a a very good job when it comes to creating a very high ratio of good questions. Uh, Metaculus has. Mm-hmm thousands of questions active at every single time and and they span a very wide range. So if you're interested in EA, you're probably going to find a lot of other questions on Metaculus that are interesting about, you know, meat alternatives, about AGI, about tons of different topics that you won't get on a good judgment open. Um, I also think Hypermind has very good forecasts on it. Again, this is a website focused on geopolitical questions and I've noticed that the quality of information there is very good. If you're like in like the DOD defense space, Infer has a lot of very interesting questions there. It is very niche. It's it's a website that's largely funded by the US government. And then if you're into like culture stuff, crypto, if you're like more short forecasts, uh, I think the prediction markets have, they can be really fun to watch. And when they do have overlap with like, Good Judgment Open or Metaculus, it can be really interesting to see how does like predicted view this versus Metaculus and sort of tracking those two movements as well. Um, so there is like a very wide range of platforms out there right now. Both of you also work uh, from time to time together on this podcast called Nonprofits. That's profits with a with a PH. Uh, I like the title. Yeah, Robert, can, can you tell us a, a little bit about kind of what people might find on there if they subscribed and what, what the vision for that show was? Sure. Well, uh, so first of all, I should say that uh, we do separate podcasts. We've been talking about doing a, some kind of a cross podcast event, a crossover <laughs> event for the two of us. But yeah, so nonprofits, I think it was originally described as a super casual 
podcast, which is to say that we sometimes prepare a lot and sometimes just show up and talk about things. Hmm. Uh, and sometimes that's really good. And sometimes you could tell we're probably that we're just showing up and talking about things. But uh, it started about five years ago, another couple of supers that I knew through the Good Judgment Project tournament just proposed doing it. And we, it's kind of like a forecasting variety hour. We talk a lot about politics. We also talk about forecasting research sometimes. We do interviews. We have been forecasting the Pantone color of the year for years. <laughs> I don't know if anyone, you know, cares about fashion. I don't know if all of our listeners are that into it, but we really enjoy trying to figure out what this year's color is going to be. Uh, and I've been right several times, although last year was a complete disaster. Um, <laughs> but it's, Discrediting. So it's, what's that? It's discrediting to get that wrong. <laughs> well, you know, to be fair, there are, I don't know how many different colors you want to say there are. So that's a big pool to choose from. And yeah. last year they they went off the reservation and chose a color they hadn't indicated, they'd been given no hint of before. So right. I'm going to, you know, but we should have known they might do that. That's, that's <laughs> the problem with our... Um, yeah, basically it's sort of a forecasting variety thing and it's, yeah. we have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, Clay. Yeah. So then, you know, at Global Guessing, we sort of have two podcasts. One that's sort of just, it used to be weekly, but due to various commitments, it has, for the time being, been moved to intermittent. And in the near future, we'll come back to weekly. And that's like interviewing people in the forecasting and geopolitical space about their projects, their view on forecasting. But I think the more interesting podcast that we do that we're going to be bringing back shortly is the is the Right Side of Maybe, where we talk to really good forecasters and, and try to talk to them about like three or four past predictions that they've done, what they learned from it, how they approach their forecast, what they got right, what they got wrong, as well as like just what their general approaches to forecasting. Because, you know, I was talking about how I'll spend eight hours a day on a single forecasting question. And some people will forecast 15 questions in 30 minutes. Um, there is a very wide range of approaches that people take to doing forecasting well. And you can learn a lot by talking to people that do it differently. And, you know, we all, it, it's, it's always great to talk about the forecast that people got right, but it's also the ones that they got wrong where you can learn a lot of really interesting things. Absolutely. You know, when they weren't able to break away from the community, even though in their hearts, in their forecast, it's that they probably should be doing that, which can be very difficult, right? If Metacula says it's 10% and you're thinking it's 80%, it can be difficult to break from the crowd because the crowd generally gets it correct. And so, yeah, talking to forecasters also about the lessons that they got from their false forecasts as well. Yeah, it's, it's something I really like about the kind of forecasting scene is people love to say, I got like X wrong. I was like way off uh, off base about that. And here's what I think went wrong. And here's what I'm going to try to correct for, for next time. It's kind of the only way or it's like one of the main ways you can actually get good at this over time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like when, when Robert was talking about they picked a color that wasn't even in the set. I mean, that like you think like, oh, well, that's not a very applicable forecasting error. I think that happens quite a lot of the time. One of the forecasts that we got very wrong on global guessing was the spread of the alpha variant of COVID hmm. because we didn't factor in the possibility that maybe there was another variant of concern in the United States that would outcompete it and slow its growth relative to how it grew in the UK or in France. And so, you know, sometimes you have to realize that you might not even have the right answer you in don't your no. Yeah. yeah. Like you might just be forgetting about a piece of the puzzle that's that that is integral. And it's it's always good to sort of keep that in mind because that that is actually quite a common error. 
Absolutely. Yeah, Robert, it sounded like you agreed with me that there's a lot of movement or a lot of activity, a lot of buzz around forecasting at the moment. Yeah. What are some of the kind of signs of that? What's what's going on? Well, one of the big things was the FTX Foundation announced they were going to donate a lot of money. And one of the things they or a number of the projects they wanted to do involve forecasting or specifically super forecasting kind of judgmental stuff. So there was a big scramble to apply for this. Uh, I feel like almost everyone I knew <laughs> who is in forecasting was interested in some of this, some of this bonanza. I think it's a really good thing. So I, I actually, by the way, I'm, I'm more like you. I like to spend a lot of time forecasting questions. There are some things, you know, I've been forecasting whether the Fed's going to raise rates, and that doesn't take me very long because I've done it a bunch of times, and you know where the sources, you know, the sources to look at and everything. But typically, I feel like I could do a lot better forecasting if I spent more time on single questions. Sometimes you can get maybe 80% of the way to a forecast with, you know, relatively little effort. But really, something like the war in Ukraine, you could spend eight or nine hours, you could be an analyst, and that could be your entire job. And maybe you wouldn't help your forecast, but you might discover something you missed if you spend that time. So I have often felt doing this in my spare time or in a small amount of time that I'm not doing a great job. Uh, that I might, my scores have been pretty good, but I could be doing a lot better. I've, I've screwed something up because I failed to update it. I didn't watch the news closely enough or I didn't read something. And so I'm conscious of wishing that I had more time. And this money, I think, will make it possible for some people to make it a job, to actually devote the, the time they, they should to it. I think one of the things that, that organizations like Good Judgment have tried to do Maybe this isn't fair, but try to do forecasting a little bit on the cheap. We'll get a lot of volunteers and give them Amazon gift cards or small honoraria, and we'll get a wisdom of the crowds effect that catches a lot of mistakes. And that works to a certain extent, but I feel like sometimes our forecasts are slow to update because people, they have jobs. They work 50 hours a week doing something else. They have three kids, whatever it is. So I think it's a good thing to to actually give people the time to spend on it by paying them a living wage. Definitely. Yeah. And, and just on that point, you know, like we've also just seen Andrew and I, we've calculated how many startups there are in the forecasting and prediction market space. And there was a lot of activity, like once the IARPA tournament started in 2011, 2012, that sort of went up until 2016, 2017. I think there was like 26 new startups in one year. And then for the preceding years afterwards, it was extraordinarily low. And we've seen a lot of new companies go into the forecasting space, uh, a ton in the crypto prediction market space, but then a lot of just traditional forecasting companies as well. And again, a lot of money has been coming in into the space, not only through new companies, but existing companies seemingly uh, are reinvesting in the space and trying new things that they haven't been doing before, like redoing their front end or, 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 or trying out new content that they weren't doing before. And I think part of it is like geopolitics were kind of like written off and the importance of having good insight into the future of geopolitics was kind of written off in the past. Mm -hmm. And as the world changes, I think people are realizing that actually having a good sense on where the world is going is incredibly valuable. Like if you knew an invasion of Russia was going to happen, there was a lot as, as a business as, as as an investor, as as an activist, as an individual Ukrainian, as, yeah, as as an individual Ukrainian, um, could have done with that, and so I think there's also part of that as well. 
Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's move on to the meat of today's conversation, which is kind of all of the forecasts that we've made about or the, kind of uh, our attempt to get insight into the Russian invasion of Ukraine on various different aspects of it, and I suppose the, the remaining questions and uncertainties that we, that we have now. I guess yeah, winding back to kind of January and February, I know both of you were thinking about this issue back then when we knew a whole less a whole a lot less than than we do now. Um, what kinds of predictions did you make, and how did they pan out? Uh, maybe uh, Robert first. Yeah, so I when I back in January, I didn't make good predictions about this. I wasn't following it very closely, and uh, I think Atif asked me on our podcast. This is one of the guys I podcast with. Asked me if I thought there was going to be an invasion, and my answer was basically, I don't think it makes sense. So probably not. Um, <laughs> and I think that's a lot of reasons why people were wrong about it because they looked at it. Even good forecasters I know and said it doesn't make a lot of sense to do this. Uh, so probably not. Hmm. I think that there is a that's kind of a forecasting error. Sometimes people in intelligence talk about mirror imaging, which is to assume that the other people whose behavior you're trying to forecast think, see things the way you do. I, I think a lot of people did that with Putin and with Russia in this case. I also want to push back a little bit because I think that it, that kind of thinking can be useful, right? Like you, you do go around making basic assumptions that people are trying to do things that are smart and playing a certain game and so on. And it'd be really hard to forecast anything if you imagine people were just capable to do random things at any given time. Um, mm. But I think that I think a lot of good forecasters looked at it and said, this is a strategic blunder. This is counterproductive. It's not that likely. And that was my initial reaction. Later, I, I mean, it, Russia kind of started to invade even before they crossed the line. They, they were doing all the things you would want to do if you were really seriously going to invade. And I, I guess that's how you want to do a bluff too. But like it was a really good bluff if that's what it was. They were getting blood supplies and, and you know, changing conscript rules and all sorts of little minor details. And at some point, I think all that stuff happening made me recognize, well, this is really probably going to happen, uh, even though I still had some doubts, hmm. uh, which I've talked to Clay about. There was also an argument that I, he, Putin has been indicating, you know, tipping his hands and talking about his ideology for years. And, and I think people haven't been taking him very seriously. Hmm. I didn't follow that very closely initially, but in February, I started to look at that and, and see, oh, this is actually something that he may really do. But I, I wish I could say I had done a better job earlier. Uh, Clay was the one who was on that. Yeah, Clay, how did, how did you do? Yeah, so I, by January, I had gone back up to like January 1st around. I was 62% likelihood of an invasion. At the beginning of the month, it, it rose quite precipitously as, as the invasion and the steps that Russia was taking was escalating. And then I decreased over the, the month of January as you saw substantive Russia-US talks about European security, as well as an effort to revive the Normandy format uh, and have France and Germany sort of play a role in getting Minsk to across the line with uh, Zelensky and Putin. Hmm. By February, those prospects had died. I was actually quite surprised at the degree to which the U.S. actually took Russia's concerns initially seriously, but nothing really ever came out of that. And I think actually the offer that, that Russia made, uh, I don't think was actually seriously enough considered, And but that's probably another topic for another day. Um, but suffice to say that at the start of February, I was at 88% chance that Russia was going to invade Ukraine. Wow. There was slight downs, but you know, by February 12th, I was 90 plus, and then from there it was just a, a march up to 
I, I think I hit 99, 100% on February 21st or the 20th. And they invaded on the 24th from memory, yes, right? Yes, correct. And they announced so you were at 99% that, a few days before they did it. Yeah, and I and I, I was struggling for quite a few days, right? That, that's, again, where, like, the 10 hours are, like, hmm. we're talking about getting rid of one world or, I mean, if we can say it's a 1,000 worlds, we're getting rid of 10. But, you know, you're, you're making that, that very fine judgment, and that was – really difficult and I, I don't even know if it was like worth the time right is, is, is it worth 40 hours to go from 96 to 99 i don't i don't know i did it um so <laughs> um yeah but yeah. um that was sort of the path i mean that's super impressive i'm kind of curious to know yeah what do you think that you were seeing that a lot of other people were not my impression is that in general like people were pretty divided on this and many people were just kind of agnostic because it was hard to tell my view was that we weren't kind of going to know whether it was a bluff until they basically crossed the border because a bluff and a real threat <laughs> kind of not necessarily they have to look the same. I think a big thing that a lot of people had wrong, whether or not they were right or or, or wrong, right? And we, we don't know that without like a very large track record, but I think you can make a case if you were 33% chance two weeks before it happened that that was probably an incorrect forecast. But that people didn't really have a, a theory of of the Ukrainian conflict, of the Russian-NATO conflict, um, what the parties wanted and what they were each willing to spend in order to achieve their objectives. And we'll talk about this later, but one thing that I've been surprised about is the U.S.'s degree to involve itself in this conflict, particularly given the actions that it that the country took before the invasion of Ukraine like that has surprised me. And so I, I think not having a good model of what was happening and therefore, like, what are the signals that you were looking out for, right? I, I was looking for, is there any sign that this is Putin bluffing versus here is the situation that's going on between Russia, Ukraine, how it's been evolving since 2014, 2015, whether it's regards to Ukrainian domestic sentiment on having this sort of new Warsaw Pact versus joining EU NATO, whether that's the shipment and, and training of Western arms, whether it's sanctions on, on, on Russia, et cetera, et cetera, that given like it, is, is Putin still bluffing or is he going to take advantage of the post-COVID high inflation West? There were all those reports about like the gas prices being really high already. So he has that very good mm. um, leverage point right there. So was that a bluff? Was Zelensky going to agree to mince two? which would have granted political autonomy within Ukraine to the LPR and the DPR, which would have given those republics de facto veto over Ukraine joining NATO and the EU? And would the U.S. have made some sort of security concessions uh, within Europe, which I don't think that would have been immediately necessary for an invasion happening, but it is part of the larger conflict, which I think Russia-Ukraine sits in. And so, like, those were the things that I was looking for, as well as was the U.S. going to credibly commit itself to involving itself in, in, in the conflict. And all the signals were, I was just trying to see like, what, how, how are those questions resolving? And so I, I had a model to guide me through a very high signal environment, which I think is really useful not to get a lot of noise because there was just so much information. Yeah. And then I think forecasters just didn't have that, which again, time, right? Yeah. 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 It sounds like you just had a lot more like granular, domain knowledge or like knowledge about the specific situations and the actors and their views and their values and so on. And that allowed you to pick up on stuff that most people were missing when they were looking at it at a very kind of high level abstract point of view. And I also think that like having like high level theory, right? Like the point that Robert was making earlier about like this not being a rational 
choice for Putin. And I, I told this to friends. I've, I've told this to other forecasters privately before the invasion. But uh, if I was Putin, knowing what I knew then, I actually I, I don't think it would have been irrational for me to invade Ukraine. Now, I think that that ended up being wrong because Putin made the mistake of thinking that Ukraine and NATO, that there was like the separation, whereas actually like the U.S. was willing to actually go to war in in a sense should Russia invade Ukraine, which I don't think was the message beforehand. But sort of barring that, I think you actually could, given Putin's context in Russia, that it actually wasn't irrational for him to invade. Yeah. It wasn't so obviously contrary to his interests as he perceives it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, yeah, let's let's get on to this kind of next aspect of the question where I think a lot of people, including me, had the wrong idea about how things were going to play out, which is kind of expecting the Russian military to perform far better and to like accomplish their their goals much better than they than they actually did. Yeah, did you think very much about kind of how likely Russia was to be able to, you know, take cities like Kiev or, you know, uh, be able to politically dominate Ukraine after the invasion, uh, Rob? Yeah, I thought some about it. I I was surprised. I like I think virtually everyone has have been surprised that Russia hasn't done better, but I didn't necessarily expect Russia to be world beaters. Uh, I, I guess I would have said that I thought their military was a little bit overrated, but also I think people underestimated how capable the Ukrainian military was. This is a, a large army; they've built it up. They they've been modernizing it over you know since the last Russian invasion, uh, if not before, and they are a veteran group that has been fighting peer forces on their own territory for a long time. I think probably in hindsight, I would have also thought more about morale. You have Russian soldiers who don't even know they're going to war initially, much less really have a conviction that it's a really important thing. And on the other side, you have Ukrainians who are fighting to defend their home. And I think that is very important. So I thought Ukraine would hold out longer than some people did, but I didn't see this coming. You know, the U.S., Government, I supposedly estimated that Kiev was going to fall within four days, and uh, that was one of the like longer amounts of times that estimates that people had estimated. Um, I don't know if I thought that was likely because urban warfare is difficult, and and Ukraine would have had to really collapse. But I did not think that Kiev would hold out indefinitely. And at this point, you know, it doesn't seem like it's about to fall at all. So that surprised me. I. I I think we could have figured that out a little bit better for sure. But the the experts whose information I was looking at for this mostly had the consensus that Russia would perform better. And I didn't have a lot of outside knowledge to, to evaluate that claim. So I mostly believed it. Hmm. Yeah, my perception is that kind of during the, the lead up in January and February, the question of whether Russia would invade was sucking up so much oxygen that there wasn't as much thought going into this question of like, how would the invasion play out? I saw a bit of writing about that, you know, in the week or two ahead of the actual invasion. But it seems like many people, <laughs> like me, just kind of assumed that Russia was going to be very dominant in this in the, in this fight. And so it's kind of a, a question that I mean, it was a question that was asked, but a question that wasn't like given that much attention. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that Russia's military has a reputation for being the second best military in the world, and and. The assumption was that they would just win this. I also think I should point out, like, I think U.S. intelligence has made a difference. We haven't talked about it that much, but Hmm. uh, the U.S. has been feeding Ukraine information about when they're going to be hit, about where targets are. And I don't want to undersell the incredible Ukrainian performance, but I think that has also been a 
big factor that maybe we didn't think about, or I didn't think about enough, certainly before the war started. Yeah, Clay, how about you? What did <laughs> You were spending tons of time thinking about this. I imagine you might have had a few more hours in there to, to think about what was going to happen after Russia tried to invade. Yeah, it's such a great question. And it's such a difficult one to answer. I think it's definitely true that, right, Russia has not performed as everyone would expect it to fight all else equal. I do think that is true. And I, I also do think that the extent to which Ukraine is fighting is at least on the high end of the predictions that people were making before the war, right? A, a lot has been made about the changes that underwent the Ukrainian military when, you know, it did horribly in 2014 and 2015 to the point where they had to agree to Minsk two, which was a terrible deal for Ukrainian sovereignty and why it hasn't been implemented, right? And a lot of work has gone into the Ukrainian military. They've gotten a lot of training. They've gotten a lot of combat experience, right, fighting in the Donbass. Uh, they received a, a lot of equipment as well. And all of that was very um, influential. And I think all of that is true. I think for me, I'm, I'm less surprised about how the Russian military has performed and rather the way in which Ukraine has been supported by the West. Whether it whether it was sanctions with, I think, the even the initial sanctions were more than what people were expecting and they've and they've only increased or whether it comes to the amount of military aid, whether that's bullets, whether that's anti-rockets, whether that's now increasingly heavy equipment or I think also very central is intelligence, right? We knew on day one that um, they were sharing uh, signals intelligence and, and satellite intelligence with Ukraine. But there's also been reports that there are U.S. special forces on the ground giving intelligence, which with the reports now that the U.S. has been sharing intelligence to get high value targets, like that's not something that you can just do if you, if you don't have anyone on on the ground. And so, you know, you have that. You also have the U.S. military doing war games on how to defend against attack on Kiev hmm. and really sort of working with the Ukrainian military. And I, I don't think I had a properly appreciated, like, first of all, to what extent is the U.S. military and, and government going to be involved in the war in Ukraine? And then also, what is that impact going to be? Because the U.S. is very good at figuring out logistics, is very good at getting intelligence and carrying out strikes. And I don't think I factored that in. On on the other hand, like, I think the question, like, Russia has performed poorly, I think that also, like, relative to what, right? It's been bad, but, like, how bad has it been? Um, it took... NATO one month to get Baghdad, but Iraq's half the size of Ukraine. Mm. It has a much smaller population and it's much more concentrated. I think like 20 something percent of the population in Iraq lives in Baghdad. Nine percent live in Kiev, right? So it, it's much more spread out, much more targets, much better military. Um, in one day in, in Iraq, NATO launched 1600 aircraft and fired 500 cruise missiles it took Russia 10, 12 days to fire 500 cruise missiles. And if my memory of open source intelligence is correct, like Russia only brought 300 aircraft to the border of, of Ukraine. So it's a very different military operation. And they've made a lot of gains in the south and the east. Yes, they've pulled back from the north, but they weren't routed in, in the sense that on the way out, the convoys were just, you know, taken away. They, they, they mined yeah. a lot of the areas. And so, like, in the middle of a war, it's very difficult to really get a sense on how these militaries are performing. 
And when I think the information is like we only really see the Ukrainian POV of of the war, which is very different than to the lead up. Right before the war, we only saw Russian military equipment moving to the border, uh, training exercises that they were doing with with Belarus. And we saw nothing about how Ukraine was mobilizing or or what they were doing. And now that the war has started. We see all of the Ukrainian victories, but we, we get very little about how the Russian military is performing um, and how they perceive their own performance, perhaps, or to what degree they are accomplishing their own goals in their mind. Yeah. And and then also, like, it, it is just kind of interesting that, like, they don't care to correct the narrative or to set up their own narrative. And so either they're doing, hor- like, so bad that they couldn't even spin it if they tried, or they, they like having this sort of, you know, like, you, you can set your own narrative and we're just going to keep fighting the war. Hmm. And and so, like, how's the Russian military faring? Like, asking three months and 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 sort of see how see how things have gone like have they gotten east like all the way east to the Dnieper have they tried and successfully captured Odessa which I think is more valuable than Kiev if if we're talking about the the state power of Ukraine and also fighting a long-term war right because then Ukraine has no coast uh, and Russia has the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea as well I agree well I agree on one thing which is that I think that uh, they have performed better in the South and the East. And I think there are reasons for that. That's more the style of war that Russia is prepared for. And I suspect they will continue to do better in that region than they did trying to take Kyiv. They're artillery-heavy army. It'll be easier for them to handle logistics in that area. So I think we may be surprised that Russia performs a little bit better or seems to in the, in the future. I don't know whether or not they'll get Odessa. That's a well, I haven't really thought very carefully about it, but I think that's an open question. I also think, though, I was not as surprised by the NATO response. I think the NATO response has been it has been more than I expected. I think that some of that has to do with NATO leadership, and the Biden administration has done a pretty good job of rallying NATO, and I don't think the Russians expected that. But if I had been Putin's advisor, I would have told him, you go far beyond the Donbass, you mess around, you go to Kiev, you will have a massive response from Europe. And that's what I anticipated. And that's part of the reason I thought that he might not do it. I think that Putin's advisors were not telling him that or Putin didn't think that. And as Clay said, there are reasons why one might think NATO wouldn't rally. NATO wasn't very good at signaling some of that. But that was my expectation the whole time and why I thought this is just a crazy thing to do. I mean, this has revitalized NATO as an organization and made people in Europe think a lot more about Europe as a, an institution as well, which is the exact opposite of what he would have wanted. Yeah. What I, what I do think on, on that, you know, is like also like to what degree is the, the successful push in the East and the South due to the fact that the Ukrainian military, right, had to be positioned in like in Kiev at, at the start of the war because there, there was a, a massive presence there. So, so they couldn't shift their forces to the Donbass to reinforce the troops as an objective. I think that's right. I mean, I think that you could you could say that there was some value to the attack on Kyiv, the attempt to take Kyiv as a feint, to draw Ukrainian forces off and that, you know, that bought them some success elsewhere, but it was a costly feint. I don't think that was the intention. I think that you wouldn't have done that just to try to gain in the south and east, I don't think. But yeah, you can some of the, their their success probably has to do with threatening other areas outside of the south and east. Are there any kind of general lessons that maybe we should keep in mind 
from this experience where most people had the, you know made this assumption that Russia was going to be substantially more successful militarily than it was? Uh, maybe, Clay, you go first. Yeah, I, I think important to that is like defining like what even like is success like before russia invades what is success and what is likelihood of that success for instance like the whole key will fall within two days is is it is there any chance that that's possible just through pure shock and awe or was the hope that if putin signaled that he is actually going to invade that Zelensky would immediately sue for peace because he didn't want to to fight a war and then once that didn't happen that that whole potential possibility of the war being over within two days or two weeks should just be sort of thrown out the window. Hmm. I, again, I, it also comes back to the color of the year, like thinking about things that the U.S. military actually being surprisingly involved within the war to help support the Ukrainian military and just trying to keep those things like w- when you're being very confident in a forecast you really need to think that you have all aspects of this considered and that you've considered ideas that like don't even make any sense at first, but that you've at least like gone through a process just because you're talking about getting rid of like all of the worlds out there. And so like, just always be wary about being very confident about things. Yeah. Because yeah, you use this term worlds to kind of describe different possible scenarios, different kind of ways that the that the world could play out. Is that is that how you Think about this all the time. You're, you're talking about kind of, uh, you've got a portfolio of a thousand worlds, like different possible scenarios. And you're kind of like, you want to say like each of these is equally plausible and then kind of count them up. I think it depends on the forecast, right? Like it, if, especially if I'm at like 60%, like I'm not like, oh, what are all those 40 worlds look like? It's especially when I'm at like 2% or 5% or, or like 92% where that really starts be- becoming useful. And then also just like, what is the nature of the forecast? Like when it comes to, like there was a question on Metaculus. Will the U.S. default on its debt? Like the base rate on that is so low of happening mm-hmm. and just like the reasoning of like even if political squabbles are so high, is, is Congress going to let the U.S. default on that and have anyone responsible for the calamity that that would bring to the global economy? Like no, I don't have to think about worlds. I can just you know make a forecast. But when it comes to something like Russia, Ukraine and the invasion of that and you're, and you're spending so much time – um, I do think it it is a very sort of useful exercise to really think like, all right, like what are the worlds that I can even imagine happening? And then like which ones are still surviving, especially when you're going from five to four to three. Yeah. Yeah. Robert, how, how about you? What will you uh, keep in mind next time a country invades another country? Well, it's it's interesting. I what I the research I kind of wish I had done was look at some of the the databases about wars and invasions because you can establish some kind of a base rate, but it's difficult because every situation has its own specific characteristics, and there are a lot of similarities with Russia's strategy here. That going back to Georgia and other places, you know, where where it's in, intervened or invaded, but like Ukraine's also it's a it's its scale and other factors make it very different from previous conflicts. So it is always difficult. Um, I, I agree with Clay that you need to be very careful if you're highly confident of something, if you think there's a 98% of chance of something happening, you kind of have to really rule out a lot of possibilities. Uh, and 2%, I mean, it depends on the kind of thing you're forecasting, but that almost just, you know, can be accounted for by unknown unknowns. Unknown unknowns. <laughs> yeah, this, this idea of, like there's stuff out there that you haven't thought of and probably will never be able to think of. I, you know, forecasting something as simple as like the whether or not the Fed will raise rates in the U.S., it seems very, very likely. 
But you have to ask yourself the question, would there be some weird international crisis that will change the economic situation or, or make things mm. change? Something that you just can't even anticipate. Uh, at some point, I decided that the invasion of Ukraine wouldn't change my Fed forecast. But that's the kind of thing that I wouldn't have thought about six months in advance. But something like that can always happen and potentially radically change the board. And so... I, I don't want to criticize Clay's forecast of the Ukraine invasion at all because he was much more right than I was. And, and that's, you know, the, that's evidence that his theory was right. But when I hear that he had a 96, 99% chance, I think, <laughs> yeah. what about that stuff you haven't thought of? You know, there's stuff you haven't thought of, scenarios you can't really rule out in advance. So that's always my concern when you get to that level of certainty. And honestly, I have made that mistake with COVID a bunch of times uh, where I was pretty sure I I knew what was going to happen. And particularly with new waves, new variants, they have continually surprised me. I try to look at the base rate of variants and how they happen, you know, in the past and their diseases. And I've been repeatedly overconfident about what was going to happen because I just hadn't thought of the thing that ended up happening in advance. So I think that's always a danger, that kind of level of confidence. Yeah, Clay. And then just, yeah, building on what you just said, you know, like using base rates, which I think were very influential, especially on when we forecasted Russia, Russia potentially reinvading the Donbass in 2011 uh, was something that we we very much relied on. Um, and then as we spent more time on it, sort of more shifting into the inside view, but also just like being aware of like when there's a discontinuity with the past, you know, in the Cold War, the world was described as as being bipolar. Perhaps once we're in uh, the 80s, it's more tripolar with China um, as well. And then with the fall of the Soviet Union, everyone declares that there is this unipolar moment where the United States is the sole superpower and differing degrees depending on uh, the scholar that you read that they have sort of can establish their own rules and norms and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's very clear that now, like post-invasion, we're definitely more so in a multipolar world. And then so like when you're trying to forecast an invasion, are you going to factor in the 20 years of the unipolar moment? Or do you sort of blend in actually in multipolar worlds, invasions are more likely? And so my base rate should be some percentage higher than it, it was for the last 20 years because there's been this discontinuity in the international structure. I would also say it's very useful to get to curate sources and information that disagree with each other and have very different points of view and to really understand what what they think because you'll first of all be aware of like the one big thing that like is driving their forecast even if that's not the sole driver is still going to be useful to your own forecast. So like the importance of mince 2 was something that I was sort of made aware of and, and sort of really researched uh, following this one journalist who said that, like, he wouldn't even talk about the word invasion in December, but he was sort of very bearish on it. And then, you know, not only did I learn something from him, but like tracking his forecast, he went to not even talking about invasion to saying it's going to be a low probability event to then saying, well, there's a small chance and sort of following his progression hmm. Uh, given his worldview, was almost as important as following Michael Kaufman, who in April of 2011 said, well, yeah, maybe there could be an invasion of the Donbass, but probably not. And then December 2011 is like, oh, this buildup that's happening now is different, and I am very concerned. And both of those can be very useful for a forecaster, and you can get a lot of valuable information, even out of someone who's who's not getting it right. 
Yeah, just returning to this point that it seems like the model that you had of this was uh, was better than a lot of people had, but aren't forecasts of like 98%, that seems kind of overconfident just given the in kind of inherent uncertainty of the of the situation. How can you justify having such an extreme, extremely high like probability of, of invasion ahead of it? Yeah, so 98 would have been like five, six days beforehand. And that was sort of the shift into like, are we in pre-mobilization or are we like actually in active mobilization? And it was just, again, coming down to like, is there a last ditch effort for Zelensky to unilaterally implement Minsk in uh, Ukraine, which was more or less asking, is Zelensky willing to be kicked out of office? Because no one in Ukraine would have supported that policy. Um, So can can I interject? I'm curious whether you think that would have stopped the war. Because I don't know that it would have. So, right, the question is, like, that would have achieved a lot of Russia's objectives. Because by granting political autonomy to the LPR and the DPR, that would have prevented Ukraine from ever joining NATO or from joining the EU. If you understand Minsk as it was in 2015, I know in, like, 2018, some Western legal scholars have actually said that um, the political autonomy wouldn't have granted those republics a veto over Ukrainian foreign policy. But... If it were in that sense, that's like a very large objective besides getting like a land bridge to Crimea or getting some of the territory in the east. And so that would have achieved a a ton of Russia's objectives in the conflict while also getting Zelensky out of office because it was really politically unpopular, which would have given a great opportunity to get a pro-Russian figure into Ukraine as well. Would it have stopped an invasion? Maybe not, right? Like there are a lot of different – like we're dealing with like system effects, right? Like we're now relying on information based on the actions that didn't happen. So I I can't be certain. But would invasion have happened on February 24th had Zelensky implemented Minsk? I would have – I would say very likely not that it would have happened there. So again, Minsk, the bluffing, um, what was the US going to do in the situation? And by then – It was like Putin is pulling away his forces. Oh, actually, he's increasing the forces. Now they're getting into forward camp positions. So they were moving out of staging grounds into like small tactical units on the field. You cannot maintain that force posture for more than like a week. Mm -hmm. So either uh, Putin is going to reveal that he is bluffing right here and right now or he's going to invade. Otherwise, he has to he's escalating and then he's just going to de-escalate which which would hurt his position and so like enough factors where it was just like the sort of two percent is well maybe there's some sort of back deal talks going on between kiev and moscow and that they'll and that they'll reach an agreement before it starts but then other than that all the the sort of gears of war were moving i mean i think it was world war one where between the order for russia to mobilize and when it started was three days and if you look at when Putin recorded his invasion video and when it went public, I think that was, again, like two or three days. Yeah. OK, let's let, let's push on a little bit. I'm curious to know kind of what sources of information you were reading in February, you know, beyond the ones that would be obvious to people that, that many people would have been reading. Maybe, Robert, uh, could you go first? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how a really great list of, you know, esoteric sources on this, but uh, I, I really valued Michael Kaufman's. His analysis was very useful. I had a dark period where I read some Eurasianist fascist literature, basically the some of the ideological justification for for some of this. Yeah, I don't know. I like 
I like reading uh, Ukrainian and Russian sources on some of this, at least the ones that are in English or that I can get translated. One thing that I thought pushed back on the idea that there would be an invasion was that a lot of you know, thoughtful Russians and Ukrainians didn't think the invasion was going to happen. Hmm. And they they may have been reasons why they were wrong. But at the same time, there was a part of me that, that thought, well, they've been through some of these cycles of threats with Russia before, and maybe they recognize that they are bluffs in a way that is not obvious to me. So I took that to some extent. So I should maybe I shouldn't say that's a good source because that turned out to lead me astray a little bit. Well, I mean, it sounds very reasonable, Exante. Even a good source will lead you astray from time to time. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Clay. Yeah. So by February, you know, I already read like Putin's essay or speech on on Ukraine and did like a lot of like the background documents. Like what were the treaties that Russia had proposed to the U.S. NATO and all that sort of stuff. So by February, it was mostly Twitter lists curating a very wide range from like commentators to analysts to open source intelligence to like, what is the Moscow Times? What is uh, RT saying? What is the Kiev Independent? You know, what is like the sort of like mainstream propaganda perspective of of each side? And kind of going overboard on my Twitter lists, like it, it got so large that like every single time you would refresh, it's just like show more tweets. It got so much. So hmm. I made like three Twitter lists and then on my phone, I would like swipe from one to the next and then uh, <laughs> like go through that again. Um, and so it, it was a lot of just like trying to find the best information on Twitter and then leveraging whether it's like the Twitter app on my phone or like TweetDeck on my computer to really follow those streams of information like a wannabe CIA analyst. Yeah. And just staring into the void of information and basically being like a bad machine learning algorithm. Like, all right, like what do, what do I take from this one piece of open source intelligence? Am I, and then like sort of like making a judgment on like the 20 pieces of information, what's signal, what's noise. And now that I have all of this, have I moved from 93 to 94 or down to 92? What's going on? And just, yeah, doing that way. Yeah. Yeah, I have kind of intuition that that doesn't seem like the most respectable or the most prestigious way of doing doing this sort of research. That uh, it, it seems to be a little bit odd that a really good way of making these predictions would just be like having tons of like tweets uh, thrown at you without like a lot of quality control necessarily. Yeah, would, would you push back and say, no, actually, this is a this is a good way of doing it? I mean, you need a ton of quality control. I mean, the if you if you look at like the rotating cast of characters who were inside of the lists and when people got strikes and I, I kicked them out, I mean, it, it was very difficult to make sure that I was getting good sources. And obviously, like one bad piece of information in such a, a high frequency environment wouldn't be disqualifying. And so just trying to keep like a running track record of the value of each of these accounts and yeah. knowing sort of what I'm trying to get at, out of them. But I, I would say it's almost more useful to get that sort of Twitter stream and you can get more information than like reading a single piece in foreign affairs or in foreign policy or um, in task and force or, or somewhere else. And not to say that I didn't read those, but you know, you read four or five of those every single day, but there was a ton of information that you would get on Twitter that you would only then U.S. Intel would then talk about it like a week later or the mainstream media would talk about it 
hopefully three days later, but sometimes like far later. And so if you wanted that edge and you were willing to like know life the question, like I was, it, <laughs> it was, a, it was a, you know, worthwhile trade-off. I that think. was the way to go. <laughs> I'd like to second that. I think Twitter has been amazing. And to some extent, it's a resource that we wouldn't have had even a few years ago between local reporting and open source intelligence. It's been really valuable for someone trying to follow this question. It is also kind of insane to get this fire hose and doom scroll through it, which is also what I was doing. But I would like to add, though, that one of the most important skills, I think, for a good forecaster is being able to identify good sources from bad. And sometimes the source will be sometimes good and sometimes bad, but you have to be pretty skeptical and then filter through it and and develop your own kind of algorithm for what to pay attention to and what not to. And that requires a lot of judgment that, you know, maybe we could teach, but it's sort of hard to actually say exactly how to do it. So I think that's a really important skill. It's just filtering that information is a big part of of accurate forecasting. What I will also say is like, I do think Twitter now post-invasion is not as good of an information source as it was pre-invasion. Mostly, it's a lot of complex things here. Again, like the open source intelligence community was very good about reporting on Russian troop movements. And I think if we were looking at like what's a more important signal that we want to consider, is it whether or not Ukraine is mobilizing or if Russia is continuing their push? I think, you know, Russia's actions were more important and you could still get signals that Ukraine was making actions. There was like an article in, in the FT from like, February 17th, I talked about some mobilization being done in villages, and you can like piece together enough nuggets. But I think the information was primarily about like the aggressive actions that Russia was going to take, and Twitter was very good at communicating that information. But then, like post invasion, I remember on like when the invasion started, a a lot of the OSINT guys talked about how they weren't going to post about Ukrainian movements, like what was happening on, on their side of the military. And clearly there, you know, Ukraine has won the information war when it comes to at least Western social media. I don't know what's going on on Telegram. I, I don't really use it. And I imagine it's a different picture there. But on Twitter, I think the Ukrainian information side is winning. And so it, it makes it difficult now to sort of get a very clear picture on what is going on. And again, like, I think knowing like when an information source is more trustworthy, like, I think just all else equal, you should have trusted U.S. intel more on Russia-Ukraine than you would on the pullout of Afghanistan, just given where, like, U.S. interests and incentives were about relaying accurate information. Like, it it, it would have been horrible if, while we were pulling out, like, you said Blinken come up on stage and, like, yeah, they're going to collapse in two weeks, like, as, as we Wednesday, do it. Like, yeah. that, 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 that doesn't – that wouldn't serve U.S. interests, or it's being sort of very upfront about Russia invading Ukraine would be. And so, like, I do think – you know, Twitter is still very valuable. I still rely on my lists, but it's it's becoming it's like a less bit more of a pinch of salt. It's now. becoming less valuable. But then, like th- that's just war, right? Like information is a very critical aspect of war. And now that we're in it, for me, I'm I'm just a little bit I'm a little bit more sticky in my beliefs. That's not to say that like I'm no longer updating, and I'm just like a very sad hedgehog who's going to get ev- everything wrong. But like, <laughs> I was definitely much more flexible and and willing to update beforehand because. I, I think I had a better trust of the information and the and the picture that that was sort of giving to me. And just as like an interesting exercise, like, again, like the Russian military doing bad is, is a very big theme right now. So I went back and I read New York Times articles about the first Chechen war, which ultimately um, they captured Grozny. 
the uh, Russian military. And a lot of what's being said about the Russian military now was being said about it then. And, you know, part of that is narratives. I think also part of that is mixing up like tactical developments, like what's happening on this individual battle versus like what is the larger strategic picture. But yeah, I, I will say that right now information is, I think, difficult. Robert, I'd be curious, like, have, have you found like a, a source now that's particularly good that you've been relying on? No, actually, I, I think I, I mean, there are some that I like, but I think I basically agree with your point that in the lead up to the war, it was this like Wild West information firehose. And a lot of the stuff we were interested in was not being protected by open source intelligence guys. And I I'm glad they're not reporting on Ukrainian troop movements, but I would like to know in doing my forecasts, yeah. I, I want to say that a lot of the sources have been somewhat sanitized. We're getting a lot of U.S. analysts and reporters who were talking about the, the defense briefing of the day. And, and Ukraine is, is winning the information war in social media. Uh, I think if we were seeing what was going on in, in Russian social media or Russian media, it would be a very different. But I don't look at that stuff very much. And I don't think that's very informative for what we're doing. So it, it, there are, I do feel like we're not getting the same level of like straight uncut information from the field uh, that we were initially. Which makes it difficult, right? Because like one of the yeah. things about forecasting is like you really have to just look at the world as it is, not that you want to. And as we talk about like nuclear risk forecasting, like you, you don't want to look at the world for as it is because it can be depressing it's and horrible. like staring into yeah. the abyss. And yet in order to forecast and what makes it so exhausting is like you have to separate what you want the world to look like with actually how the world is looking. And that's just harder now than I think it was before. Yeah, let's talk about the assessments of the probability of the use of nuclear weapons as a result of, of, of all of this. I think it's it's actually our shared interest in that, which got us kind of put in contact uh, together in March and caused us to, to think about producing this episode. I guess just to rewind mentally for listeners, I, I guess Russia invaded around the 24th of February. And I think for the next couple of weeks, all three of us and many other people were frantically <laughs> trying to figure out like what was the probability of escalation to direct conflict between Russia and NATO and what was the, what was the risk of the use of weapons of mass destruction either kind of tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield in Ukraine or the possibility of some miscalculation or some sort of event leading to an escalation to the use of strategic nuclear weapons by by NATO or, or Russia and this concerned us all not only as a forecasting exercise, but also potentially because it could affect us personally, obviously, if, if those weapons were used, then cities in which we're living could potentially be targeted. So it was uh, very much at the forefront of my mind, possibly more than it should have been, but <laughs> it does feel like an important question. Yeah, maybe one by one, could you talk about yeah how you approach trying to answer this question? I guess here we were dealing with lower probability events. I don't think any of us thought that this was more likely than not or anything like that. It was it was closer to kind of 1% or 0.1%. So it kind of makes it a slightly different exercise. Maybe, yeah, uh, Clay, could you go first? Yeah. So I think like the first way I try to think about it is like, what is the interesting forecasting question here? And I'm like, on, on a lot of platforms, it's like, will a nuclear weapon device be detonated by August 27th? Or will it be done by 2023 or 2024? And I think that's a very interesting tactical forecasting question. I think that relies, though, on like a lot of inside information about like how processes are working, under what time scale do things of escalation matter. And when I try to think of like what is the best way to use my time forecasting, especially something that's dependent on so many like future steps, like it's not, we're not just going to go from today fighting. 
famous last words, but like <laughs> sub sub one percent. We're just going to go from today to Russia launching a nuclear weapon at Kiev or London or, or sort of anything like that. There's a lot of steps along that way, and when those could possibly happen, I think are very difficult. And so we get into this realm of of system effects where I just don't think it's really within the reasonable realm of, of forecasting to to do or to really figure out that time component makes it really difficult. So I think for me, I view it as like, what is the likelihood that Russia uses a nuclear weapon before either a peace deal gets signed or key falls? So this conflict turns into an insurgency or it comes to an end. And that was the original way I looked at it. Given what's happened on the battlefield, maybe it should be thought of a little bit differently. And sort of approaching that is like, what are like the escalation ladders that leads to nuclear weapons being used? So one way that I thought of it happening is it starts off with Russia conducts a atmospheric nuclear test, right? That doesn't have any sort of direct impact, although I I do think psychologically that could do something to Western markets. Um, We've seen the Russian military like to shoot footage that looks like it's part of like an IMAX movie when they were like – taking away their tanks from the border. They shot it like it's Steven Spielberg. So something like that, like a 4K nuclear explosion and like put that on social media, like that could, you know, hurt and spook markets. And that could be like a way that Russia gets back at us. And then we react poorly to that. And that gets us up an escalation ladder, whether it's, you know, Russia attacks uh, Western aid shipments, especially as the West increases the amount of aid that they do. Although, how long the West can continue sending the aid that we are, I think, is a, a fair question. I think we've used a, like a third of our javelin stockpile in the U.S. So, um, But anyway, like Russia attacking some sort of NATO shipment or then doing some sort of tactical nuclear strike within Ukraine as a show of force. I do think there's something fair to say that the image of Russia right now is, is not one that I think Putin or the Russian elite likes in terms of their military capabilities and using a nuclear weapon could be a way to 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 sort of you know shake heads flex their muscles yeah mm-hmm. like um and do that and just sort of trying to think about like what is the likelihood for the west getting directly involved because on, on the one hand like i i don't even think that's something that we should necessarily rule out i think there could actually be a lot of benefits from the West if we had a plan on how to manage the nuclear risks of getting directly involved and defeating Russia. And if we're talking about like long-term nuclear risks, having a defeated potentially reform Russia would reduce long-term risk more than having Russia as as an actor right now. And so like thinking through those various scenarios, I mean – before like a peace deal, which, you know, I think I was talking with uh, M- Mikhail Dubrowski about like how long is this conflict going to last and barring a sudden collapse of Russia or, you know, a significant threat to the sovereignty of the Ukrainian government, whether that's civil fighting between the different factions within society, which were very fractured before the invasion or some sort of saboteurs or Zelensky gets assassinated, you know, barring a rapid collapse, I could see this conflict easily lasting you know, a full year hmm. uh, or or longer. And so un- under that time frame, I would probably put my number at 12.5% right now. I could be persuaded down to 8%. I could see myself going higher as well. It's a very uncomfortable question, but there are a lot of avenues that lead to it. And in our initial set of forecasts on Russia-Ukraine, 
I sort of ended it like really panicked about like how we were just like nonchalantly escalating the conflict. And I do think the pace at which the West has escalated has cooled off a bit. But the general direction, though, is still of greater Western involvement. There's been more talk now about Russia making moves in uh, Transnistria, which would get Moldova involved. I am, for instance, worried about China and Taiwan and a whole other set of nuclear flashpoints that exist that given the the war that's going on right now, like if something were to happen between Iran and Israel, the battle lines that, that would be drawn out would be in part driven by Russia-Ukraine. And so, you know, is is a part of that conflict then too. Yeah. So so just, just to clarify, um, when you're saying eight to twelve percent, that's most of that probably, I guess, is the use of a is the use of a tactical nuclear weapon in the war in Ukraine. I'm I'm imagining, right? At least happening first, right? Like, uh, right. So that's how it's done. Yeah. That starts using it there. Like, it's more likely to have the nuclear weapon be used in Ukraine, <laughs> keep the conflict in Ukraine, and sort of force the West to escalate and bring it sort of into a larger conflict than having their first nuclear strike being in Poland or something. Yeah. Or using like a strategic nuclear weapon on London. Because you have to realize like none of these leaders want a full-out nuclear war. Like they live in this world. Their kids live in this world. We we can't rule out that they want to do that. Like they very much don't want to get to that place. Whereas tactical nuclear weapons is different. This is something that the U.S. spent a lot of money on in the 50s and 60s, something that Russia has kept part of their military doctrine since. So, yeah, more on the tactical side. But, of course, you know, Russia uses a tactical nuclear weapon, and then that's used as a basis for a no-fly zone. And then, right, you could easily see how that could lead to larger nuclear conflict as well. Yeah. Yeah, Robert, how how are you thinking about this kind of in the in the first few weeks of, of the invasion? Yeah. So before I uh, was writing my forecasting, I worked for years at the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. And one of the things, one of the most plausible paths to a global catastrophe is a nuclear exchange. So we did some research on this. Uh, I looked particularly at close call incidents, just a variety of nuclear incidents. I actually, some of them are pretty harrowing, but I actually came out of it thinking a lot of them were not really that close calls. But there's a lot of kind of escal- potentially escalatory moments that you wouldn't necessarily think of. For example, during uh, at one point during a war, Israel mistook a U.S. research ship in the Mediterranean for an Egyptian destroyer and attacked it. it attacked a U.S. ship, and the United States scrambled its available fighters without realizing initially that they were nuclear-armed fighters. So it scrambled nuclear-armed fighters to defend a U.S. ship against Israel. I mean, this is a crazy kind of story. And they figured it out pretty quickly. They were called the fighters. Uh, they talked to Israel and everything. I mean, but there, there are a bunch of these things where there were nuclear weapons in play in various places that you wouldn't even think that this was a likely scenario, risk scenario. So a lot of it, a lot of my concern when the war started was that there are moments for these kinds of weird escalations, mistakes, nuclear weapons in the wrong place. And this just creates so many more opportunities for things to go wrong. Uh, even though, as Clay says, nobody wants this. No, Russians love their children too. Uh, we all live in the same world. Nobody wants it destroyed. Well, maybe not nobody, but there aren't a lot of death cults that really have nuclear weapons. So just in general, I think this kind of friction with the U.S. and Russia in close proximity on opposite sides raises the chances 
to me, uncomfortably high. I also agree that the most likely scenario is some kind of tactical nuclear use in Ukraine. I initially thought that was reasonably likely. I now, having seen the way the war is going and having learned a little bit more about Russian nuclear policy, think it would be pretty difficult even for Putin to actually make this happen. The the danger, I suppose, is that if if he if Russia is losing in a certain way, they might want to change the terms of the conflict or make a demonstration, change the scope. It doesn't seem like a very good idea, but if you're already losing, maybe you try a different way of losing, even though it might not be that rational. So that that was my concern. Uh, as I say, I, I now think that is less likely than I initially thought. But there's also a lot of pressure to escalate. We have already escalated in a number of ways, the way we're supplying weapons and material to Ukraine. And NATO governments appear to be under a lot of public pressure to escalate more. I think that the Biden administration, most NATO leaders are pretty clear on not wanting to do a no-fly zone and other things that would potentially be risky escalations. But And the militaries are very aware of this kind of thing. But I worry if Russia commits some kind of atrocity or appears to have committed some kind of atrocity. I mean, they've already committed some atrocities, I think. But like, if there's a chemical weapons attack, a clear chemical weapons attack, and there are a lot of bodies on TV, can NATO politicians resist this pressure? You know, the Democrats in the U.S. may be just creamed in the upcoming midterms. Uh, at some point, is there some pressure to look tough in the U.S. Congress? These are kinds of things that potentially are riskier. And nobody wants to get to a nuclear war, but I think the small escalatory steps are a little bit scary and they increase the chances. I don't know what time frame we're talking about, 8 to 12% chance of nuclear use, but I do think there is some chance of a tactical nuclear use, maybe 1% or something. I'm not, I don't want to rule out too much because of the unknown unknowns we talked about. And the, the chance of an escalation today between the Russia and U.S. and NATO is a lot higher than it was last year because of this conflict. And I don't know exactly how high. There are some estimates. We could talk about that. But uncomfortably high. You really would prefer it to be lower. Yeah. You know, one thing that I think I also worry about when, like, we talk about escalation to nuclear weapons use is just – you know, how would we respond to a step before tactical nuclear weapons where if we overreacted, then Russia would use tactical nukes? For instance, like, I think one way to reduce that risk is to really set clear, defined lines on certain actions that would then trigger a response and then actually then do that response and not do more than that response, which I think the West has sort of hurt its ability to credibly signal its what it will respond to, right? Because the sanctions that we talked about before the invasion were not the ones that we got immediately same when it came to weapons delivery. And that's because public opinion changed. But if we're trying to manage the nuclear risk, we can't say if there's chemical, if there's chemical attack, we'll do X and not Y. But then that happens, then we do X, Y, and Z. And I think Putin is probably pretty as well, like distrusting of the West as well, because of what has happened as well, which I think just increases that larger risk. And like smaller steps that we take now could lead to nuclear weapons down the use. So if we start off supplying Ukraine with MiG fighters, right, that works great, but there's a limited number of MiGs out there from NATO. So then what happens when those MiGs run out? Either 
the Russian military has been defeated or the, the fighting goes on. And then either we're like, okay, Ukraine, we, we gave you all the MiGs, but now you don't have an air force and we really try, but we're giving up on you. That would look horrible. I think that would also be a horrible moral thing to do to support a country throughout all that and then just say, oh, well, we ran out of stuff and so now we're not going to support you. So then does the U.S. supply, you know, F-22s? But then where do they get trained for that? Do they do it in Poland? Is Are, are Polish, you know, pilots flying for Ukraine? And then how does Russia respond to that? And so, like, even actions that we take now that don't seem like they'll lead to nuclear weapons could. And, like, will there be another massacre like, uh, like Buka? I think definitely. I think that should have been entirely expected, whether that's looking at how the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq went, right? Uh, when you have a general mobilization in the country where any male age 15 to 65 will fight and they have the entire population who's fighting and you send a lot of soldiers into an environment and at the start of the war, they just don't know where they're going and they're getting slaughtered like – that can then then leads to atrocities like war gets absolutely horrific. And so if it's just another massacre that will then lead to that aid, I, I think it, we should actually be at higher than a 1% now because the likelihood of that happening is relatively high. Yeah, I'd like to add something about signaling too. Like it's, you'd like to say, here's the red line. If you cross it, this is, this is where we, we act. That sounds appealing in some way, but that's problematic, right? If we were to say, do this, and we'll, you know, that's when we might launch nuclear weapons. Everyone would say, does that mean Russia can do everything up to that point? Are you going to come out and signal in advance that chemical weapons are okay? That would be incredibly unpopular in the U.S. and elsewhere. And to some extent, the U.S. and Russia too, that nuclear powers use the ambiguous threat of nuclear response to try to deter other things. And maybe they shouldn't do that, but there are strong reasons why they feel they have to. And that's it's kind of a dangerous game. It's like wrestling on a on a slippery slope or or something. If you go too far, you might both slide down the slope. But each side is kind of using the threat that that might happen as leverage. Yeah. Okay. Let's just press pause on, on that for a minute. I'm interested to kind of rewind to those first few weeks, Robert. I think at some point you wrote a post on your Substack uh, yeah. where I think you estimated the risk of use of nuclear weapons at something like four. I said four percent. Yeah, four percent over over the. I guess, the, and that was like over the next couple of months, or I suppose yeah. like while, while the conflict persisted. Yeah. Can you can you explain kind of how yeah what that number was referring to and yeah how you uh, how you arrived at that figure? Yeah. So that was mostly my fear that Russia would try to shake up the conflict, do a demonstration of a tactical nuclear weapon within Ukraine. I didn't think they were going to launch against NATO target or something like that. It was specifically meant to be used in war in my forecast. That's what I was forecasting rather than a, an atmospheric test or something, which I think there's an additional chance of. I I think now that was high now that I've seen the dynamics and the, the way we're escalating, I think the escalation is alarming, but I don't think that it's that rapid or as dangerous as I initially thought. I also think that at the time, I thought it would be easier for Putin just in terms of ordering a nuclear use, nuclear use of a tactical weapon than it in fact would be having looked at a little bit about how, how their procedures are and... There's some debate over whether Russia has a escalate to de-escalate doctrine, uh, which essentially is like you use nuclear weapons and be like, 
that's it. Now everyone has to stop. I've used the nuclear weapons. Some people think that's insane because when you escalate, the other side wants to escalate again rather than to stop. It's not really clear whether Russia even has that doctrine. Some people have written about it, but there's a lot of ambiguity about it. In general, I think that Russia's posture is such that makes it more difficult than I might have thought that I originally thought to use tactical or nuclear weapons, even though, as Clay says, they do have that do have them. Yeah, what's, what's the thing that would prevent Putin from ordering that or make it more challenging? Well, there are sort of procedures. Uh, you, have to, you have to go through a process. I mean, both countries have this kind of a, a process where it's not just snap your fingers. I mean, there, I guess there is some kind of a button in an emergency. But essentially, there are a bunch of administrative steps and, and pushback points. And I don't, uh, I don't have the details at my fingertip. But it, it is... Although we think of him as having absolute power, and in some ways he has a very large amount of power, there, I think, are real controls to make it somewhat problematic for him just to do. And, I mean, it's also, I don't think it makes much sense for him to do. Of course, I don't want to rule out him doing something that I think doesn't make sense because he's done that before. Yeah, yeah. I also do think that, you know, China. Right. And what are they currently game for Russia to use nuclear weapons. Like before the invasion, they they clearly signed off on it. On the invasion, there, there's, in my mind, virtually no doubt that she did not approve the invasion within Ukraine and that, you know, after the fact that we're going to find out that they very much had the role that the Soviet Union had during the Korean War um, and that they've been, you know, supporting the Russian economy, the Russian war machine as well. And that, you know, so like, is, is she okay with how the West and the world will respond to nuclear weapons use now? And will the, the effects of that be what they want now? And it, it could just like not be the case, right? Like, uh, again, we're, what, we're approaching like month three of this conflict, you know, barring massive shifts. This could go on for a year, two years. I mean, obviously it could also expand and other conflicts could become part of this, but, I do think China is is very critical when trying to understand whether or not Russia is, is going to use tactical or strategic nuclear weapons. So did you just say uh, that you think she was opposed to the invasion? No, 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 um, that he signed no. off. He signed off on it. Okay, yeah, yeah. You, you think it's going to come out that China said, this is okay, go ahead. Oh, not just that, but that like they're playing the role of the Soviet Union and the Korean, like that they're materially in, involved in the party. Like if, if if we think about this from like an international law perspective, who are the primary parties in this conflict? Obviously, it's Russia-Ukraine, who are secondary warring parties, Belarus on the Russian side, definitely, probably the United States as, as well. If I don't know how special forces get count. Maybe the UK as well. If you then consider secondary non-warring parties, I think it's definitely where China is for Russia when it comes to material and getting around sanctions. And obviously on the Ukrainian side, you have the rest of NATO and the EU as well and Australia yeah. and all those fun sure. places. Yeah. Robert, when you were coming trying to come up with that 4% number, though, what methodology were you using? Was it, was it more like I read a lot of stuff and this was my just guessed out judgment? Or was there something more systematic that allowed you to say 4% rather than 10% or 1%? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's a good question. Yeah. I wish I had a really clear base rate for this, but there isn't, there isn't, thankfully, we don't have a lot of, <laughs> of good comparisons for it. So I had previously tried to estimate the risk of, of escalation in other contexts. Uh, I was one of the people who thought it was about a 
0.4% chance at a risk a year in normal times. Some people were lower than that. So one in 250, you know, with no conflict. So that's kind of like a, a floor for my my chance of, of there being some kind of escalation activity in the course of a year. And I guess to some extent, I scaled up the risk, essentially. And it's a little bit different if you're talking about using a tactical nuclear weapon. Why exactly I decided on one in 25 rather than one in 33 or, or you know, some other number. I talked to a bunch of people. I have one friend who's an excellent forecast who thought the risk might be 20%. And that seemed way too high to me. I thought one in 100 was too low, given that there was a now maybe I'm closer to that. But, you know, given that they have this active conflict and we don't know how it's going to play out. And Russia is clearly willing to do things that I wouldn't have necessarily thought they were willing to. Did I have a real principled explanation for 4%? No, I just kind of settled on one in 25 felt right to me. Yeah. As I said, I think it was probably too high at the time, although I didn't really know some things about the war then that I know now. When you were considering those those base rates, Robert, did you also consider like what if like try to find the most comparison class conflicts? So maybe Korea, I think might be on the extreme end, Vietnam, Afghanistan, yeah. the invasion of Afghanistan, and then think like if I was forecasting at the start of those conflicts, what would I have given for the use of tactical or strategic nuclear weapons? And then obviously like we live in very different world than any of those conflicts, but use that as a way to sort of nudge your forecast in a, in a direction from where it was prior. Yeah. Well, I thought about those. I mean, I, I think we do live in a very different world. I think the risk in the Korean war might've been higher. Uh, you had the whole thing with the, they thought about using nuclear weapons in Korea. Uh, I, I think the norms against nuclear weapons use were lower at the time. But yet Korea is a pretty, there aren't a lot of comparisons where you have, I mean, we've been plenty of proxy wars, but I mean, some of it is probably racism and lack of concern about people who are, you know, in poor countries and everything. But the fact that this is happening in Europe on a country that, in a large country that Europe is so invested in, it's really different than a lot of other conflicts. So I definitely felt like that raised the the risk. Russia didn't need to use nuclear weapons in, in Syria, even though there are some comparisons there. Like, well, why would they do that? They've, they've, they're winning anyway, and that's it's not that important. And so I didn't think there were many, many very good comparisons. If you can think of one that is is really similar, I don't I don't know. But that's what alarms me. It's, it feels like it's really difficult to get a fix on exact percentages in this case. Yeah, we're in slightly uncharted waters. Yeah. Did either of you spend much time thinking about not this uh, question of the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, but this question of like the possibility of escalation to an actual ex- like counterforce or countervalue strikes between NATO and Russia and, and, and how likely that was? So I'm not sure. I guess I didn't think that much about the counterforce, countervalue. It didn't occur to me that Russia would really necessarily need to use counterforce strike in Ukraine because there wasn't likely to be a large Ukrainian army that they were going to wipe out with a single blow necessarily. Uh, counter value, you could see them hitting a city. As far as, it would be counter value, I think. I don't, I don't know what force Russia would target meaningfully that would affect the war uh, with a weapon. Is that, do you disagree with that, Clay? Yeah, I think like if we're talking about like nuclear weapons use between anyone that's not Ukraine, the odds of that happening before 
use in Ukraine, I think it's not impossible, but just given like where everything is right now, that's relying on too much future information that I don't even think that that was like a worthwhile Hmm. forecast right now. That would be like in the point something, maybe even point oh something, right? Like before, like we're just a lot of steps away from that. If it though comes to will Russia do an airstrike on Polish territory? Will there be fighting between Russia and Japan on disputed islands or an attack in 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 Moldova or in the sea on some on some aid shipment? I think like that's something more that I've been really sort of interested in following, especially like the situation in Transnistria and Moldova. Uh, there's an interesting question on Metaculus that I'm following. It's whether Moldova and Romania will reunite. This used to be part of one country, which would then give Moldova Article 5 protection because Romania is part of NATO, which then if if that happens before, say, Russia takes any action in Transnistria to go into Odessa, for instance, that would sort of give Ukraine a de facto Article 5 so things like that, I think, are I'm more sort of interested in following and just sort of how like different flashpoints for escalation. Uh, but in terms of like a nuclear strike on another power or another base, the only way that could happen before one gets used is if like Joe Biden then announces that we're going to do a, a no fly zone just out of like nowhere. And then that's done in, in, in response. But it just seems unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I slightly misasked my question. Maybe the thing that I'm thinking is like during that first week, things seemed very fluid, and like mm-hmm. it was, it seemed like a lot of things seemed possible. And like obviously now we have a bunch more clarity on on where things were actually heading. But but during, yeah, during that first week or two, it seemed possible like maybe they would be convinced to do a no fly zone. Like the pressure was becoming cacophonous at times. And so then I was thinking, you know, what is the possibility that in the fullness of time before this conflict comes to a full close? that there could be use of nuclear weapons between between NATO and Russia. Yeah, so I, I did a partial forecast for that. Uh, Nuno Semperi and his forecasting team did an article on whether or not there'll be a nuclear weapons attack on London by like April. So this was like the first month of the conflict. And I think I, I was at 1% and at like 2% for a tactical nuke with within Ukraine. And for me, yeah, that was the period where like the EU was like, and we got the MIGs for, for Ukraine. And then they didn't have the MIGs and they might have had the MIGs and that, that whole back and forth. That was also the time where we all watched that late night drone footage of the nuclear plant being attacked. And a lot of people believe that it could be a Chernobyl, even though that wouldn't have been possible. And, and so like during that period, I think there was a lot of risk of hysteria, a lot of risk of, Overreaction, although, you know, that was also the same time that then you had both Russia and the U.S. announced that they had established this 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 hotline between uh, the two sides, which I, I don't think was a coincidence. Again, like I don't think either of these sides, they, they each want to do as much to achieve their goals without going over that nuclear threshold. And so like I think it was very anxiety inducing during that time because we just couldn't see everything that was being sort of like the guardrails that were being formulated. I don't know. Robert, what what do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that that we have seen them put some guardrails in place like this deconfliction hotline. Not clear how well that works, but seems to work a little bit. And that's a good sign that they have that. Uh, I think there was a lot we didn't know about how 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 the course of the war would go. And also, like, yeah, the the nuclear power plant wasn't going to be 10 times worse than Chernobyl. But a Ukrainian official, I want to say the minister of defense, tweeted out this could be 10 times worse than Chernobyl. 
So, like, I'm not an expert on nuclear power plants. I I believe that initially. The foreign secretary, yeah, the foreign secretary, right? So there was a lot of, and I don't know if that was just hysteria or if that was part of their propaganda thing to make it. But like that kind of stuff, there were a lot of scary noises, and they weren't all. A lot of them were just noise, not signal. But we were still trying to figure out what the signal was. Yeah, and just like on on that, which you know we talked about on global guessing as as well. It's just like understanding that. For Ukraine, their ultimate objective, like if they could achieve an objective right now in the war, it'd be to get the West directly involved in the conflict. And so after he tweeted, it could be 10 times the size of Chernobyl, he said, this is why we need a no-fly zone right now. And just like, I think that is important when we're thinking about information, just like what are the goals behind where that information is coming from? And and, and just to sort of be aware of, of that, because I think like doing that, helps us sort of make each provocation that we see within the conflict like less likely to sweep us away into escalation when like we otherwise wouldn't want it if that makes sense clay yeah you mentioned uh nuno sempere and his forecasting group did some work to try to estimate the likelihood of a strike on on london a place close to my heart because i am here did did i hear right that they that they thought it was one percent likely so I was at 1.3% and they were at 0.9, if I have my numbers correctly, 0.8. Yeah, I mean, that seems really high for such, <laughs> such a difficult thing. Because presumably, if, you know, London's being hit by nuclear weapons, it's not the only place. That's like, we're talking about a 1%-ish risk of like a massive catastrophe. I think, you know, like that, that was also a time when, like, what is the slope of escalation? This is something that I've, I've been, like, is... Getting from, let's just say this escalation ladder goes from zero to 10. Is is going from zero to one and then one to two, two to three. Does the time between each step, does it get faster as you go up each one? Does it get slower? Is Does it grow linearly, exponentially? Like what is, how does that look? And I feel like at the start of the conflict again, when, you know, people were on, on Twitter nonstop, just getting almost like a, a live feed of of a conflict that... It was difficult to get that. And so I don't think it was actually unreasonable to say at the start, like, this seems to be escalating quickly. Yeah. If on the very slim off chance it keeps going at this rate, it could get to that point. And so, you know, 0.8% then made sense. Whereas if, if you were to say, like, in the next month, or is there going to be a strategic nuclear strike on London? I think it's lower now than it was in, in, in the month at the start of the conflict. I would also add there's some risk of attack on London every year, right? We don't think about it, but there's some background risk. And I don't know exactly what it is, but like in the next 500 years, if we were just to go on living the same lives we we do, would there be an attack on London? At that point, I think, yeah, there's probably a pretty good chance if we just lived in this world for 500 years with no major changes, that there might be an attack on London as a background rate. That's actually probably might happen before that. So even without what was going on in Ukraine, there's a disturbing background risk of attacks on major cities. So if you start from there and, and think it's, well, it's clearly higher now, I agree that this month is less than you know, than maybe the previous months. But if you think about like the whole year or something, it's, there's a non-trivial chance when there's a conflict like this, I think. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll stick up a link to, what they, they have a, a name for their forecasting group, right? It's uh, Samot Svieti. 
Yeah, okay, I yeah. was going to get that. <laughs> <laughs> it's I don't I don't know why. I think it's like a Russian an old Russian band. <laughs> it's at uh, forecasting.substack.com you can find that report. Okay. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll stick up a link to to some of the things that they wrote uh, around that time. Yeah, what what topics are you most interested in regarding kind of Russia and Ukraine and how it's going to play out today? Maybe uh Robert first. Well, I'm really interested in the knock-on effects, food prices, fertilizer prices. There's a I think a real risk of starvation and famines in places is not because we don't have enough food in the world. It's because you often get famines when people don't have the economic resources to buy the food. And that's a thing that could happen as food prices elevate, uh, fertilizer prices elevate to agriculture. I'm interested in in the general effect on inflation and governments, uh, refugee crises. This kind of stuff makes governments fall. It puts a lot of pressure on governments. I think that incumbents in a lot of places may be under a lot of stress as they deal with the knock-on effects of this. In the longer run, I think that that the world order will probably change, that Russia's role in the world will be different, that Europe's role will be different. And I don't know, I have some vague theories about this, but I think that the world of 2025 is probably fairly different than the world of 2015. And maybe that happens in every decade, but I think we're at a moment kind of a pivotal moment where we see that things are shifting and I'm interested in how that'll be. Clay? Yeah, so definitely all those forecasts, the knock-on effects, I think are are very important, not only for what they say about how the larger world is looking, but also this conflict itself, right? Like what is persistent high inflation? Should it continue in the US and Europe have on their support for Ukraine within this conflict? Same with refugees as well um, and then also how like the rest of the globe right do they continue to straddle the line or start picking sides i'm also interested in like for very meta level questions about this conflict again you know will there be a peace deal before or shortly after key falls will the russian government collapse by then same thing for the ukrainian government looking at different flashpoints to either enlarge this conflict within the context of Russia-Ukraine. So whether that's a no-fly zone from NATO and the West, um, Russia in Moldova, action in in the Baltics, I think are all very interesting questions. But then also like there are tons of other geopolitical hotspots where both the Russia and the US are involved that could either just be directly involved in this or because they happen now could be brought into that conflict and the blocks that we see in Russia, Ukraine are going to apply to there, which will have different sort of pressure points. So whether that's Iran, US, Iran, Israel, North Korea, South Korea, North Korea, US, I think there's a ton in the Indo-Pacific, China and the South China Sea, whether that's with respect to the US or all of the disputed islands with Vietnam, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, etc. China, Taiwan is something that I, probably my forecast on invasion in the next five years is I think double or triple what Metaculus is at right now. Hmm. Um, that's something that I am I am very worried about. I'm not happy to the hear that. Scope of who's involved within this conflict, right? Like, who are the parties? What are what are the roles, and how are those changing? So, just getting the shape of the conflict, and then yeah, I have another forecast that it just lingers in the back of my head that I worry borderlines on conspiracy theory. Go I haven't I, I I haven't fully thought it through. Um, if if I had to put a probability on it right now, it's probably only one or two percent. But um, that right that China could invade and take action in Taiwan, and that the actions of the world since 2020 onwards, starting with COVID into Russia Ukraine, was actually a start of a world war. 
given all the parties that that were involved. And that's a very complex forecast relating, again, to the origins of COVID, the impact that that's had on, you know, inflation in the U.S., increased debt. Right now you see the U.S., you know, depleting a lot of its military stockpile and being really involved in a conflict, whereas in 2018, a nonpartisan Senate commission said that the U.S. can no longer fight a two-front war and defend its homeland, which was longstanding the basis of U.S. military policy. And I know probably a lot of people are going to think I'm crazy for thinking that, but I, I don't know. I, I think that there is, you know, it, it's it's a very dark world, but Robert, do you think I'm uh, crazy? <laughs> You can just say it. It's fine. I mean, I'm less worried about that than you are. I mean, I I, I actually think that what's happened in, in Ukraine has made a Chinese invasion of Taiwan less likely in the immediate future. They have seen a little bit maybe what some of the consequences. I also don't think China is ready to do that and is doing pretty well with its patient salami slicing strategy where they just kind of, you know, push people out slowly. They would like Taiwan to agree to be part of China. That's what they would really like. They don't really want to occupy that. That doesn't work as well for them. But I, I, I'd have to think more about that. We could have another podcast on the China-Taiwan issue. I'm less worried about a world war, but I am worried about sort of trends, rising authoritarianism. I worry about whether democracy will survive in the United States in the long run. And there are a lot of pressures on it. I think most of inflation in the U.S. is not really caused by the invasion of Ukraine, but it's it's potential to cause a lot of turmoil in the next four plus years. And I have concerns about how that plays out. And uh, some of the same issues are happening in other countries around the world. So I wonder, there's a part of me that wonders if the world is going to a darker place too, but I'm less worried about war than I am uh, the rise of authoritarianism. We'll definitely have to dig in uh, that Taiwan later because I do agree that you were right before the invasion. I, I do worry that, right, whereas China originally would have been looking for a window of opportunity to invade Taiwan, right, one of the ways in which Russia, China uses force, that because of what's happened right now and should they wait until, say, Russia loses um, in Ukraine, that they'll actually – this is a this is a closing window and that their future probability for success is lower now than it was before Russia invaded Ukraine, and that uh, could alter their calculus on when to take action. Yeah. We'll have to have to press pause on that because there's, there's a lot of issues there. Yeah, we're close to finishing up. I just got a few more questions. Yeah, one is a question that I've seen kind of floating around recently is this issue of kind of the, the expertise of forecasters versus the expertise of subject matter experts. Obviously, it's like people, someone who studies Ukraine and Russia all the time, you know, brings some knowledge to the table, whereas you guys aren't especially informed about Ukraine or Russia in particular, but you have this particular knowledge about forecasting and base rates and how do you estimate probabilities of things. As you're going through this, do you think that you would have been able to produce better forecasts or I guess faster forecasts if you'd say been paired up with someone who was knowledgeable about uh, Ukraine and Russia and the Minsk Accords and, and that kind of thing? Maybe would the combination of your expertise in forecasting and their expertise in the specific issue have you know um, brought a special magic to the predictions? So I mean, I'll just start off first of all and, and say that the attack on hedgehogs, I think, has been oversold. I think that hedgehogs have a lot of value and that especially when you put in as much time as, say, I might have done in a forecast that actually having that theory background was helpful. I would say my background in international relations was helpful in doing the forecast and, and definitely having an expert 
right? Like it's it's either I can go ahead and read journal articles and and go do hours worth of of research on a topic, or I can ask someone who's done that for a job that they that they're the author of the paper and instead of <laughs> figuring out what they said i could hop on to a 30 minute call and get probably even way more information than i could just from reading their words on a sheet of paper so i think domain experts could make good forecasting right a, a lot of it is the process with which you take to making your forecast right obviously having a forecast that is heavily rooted just in theory and into a very rigid worldview will do poorly right that is what expert political judgment said but you know, I, I, there was also a, a recent post, I think, on, on the A forum where how you can train domain experts to become good forecasters and they can they can reach super forecaster levels of Briar score. And so I think definitely having domain experts does a lot to like it's like I want this piece of information. Now, either I can go research it or I can find someone that has that context or then they can say, well, you've thought about this. Because of that, you also want to consider this because in this historical analog, that was relevant or you're just missing this piece of of the puzzle. Yeah, Robert? Yeah, I agree. Domain expertise doesn't make you a bad forecaster. There are domain experts that are good at, at forecasting. There's some risk that if you really have a rigid, that if you really attach to a certain perspective, it's going to be hard. But we have political scientists who are great at, at forecasting politics. I think, you know, someone who really you know, has a single framework is really, that's the kind of hedgehog that maybe doesn't do as well. I think that I would like to have more discussion with people with expertise that I don't have. I think uh, there's a project looking at existential risks, trying to forecast that in which they're going to be pairing domain experts with forecasters. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I think, Go ahead. I think Philip Tetlock's actually recruiting for that at the mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, we'll stick up a link for people. So, I, yeah, I think it's an experiment where they're trying to pair up people who have experience with forecasting and people who know about specific existential right. risks and then see whether they do better together than, a, than than apart. Yeah, we'll stick up a link with more information about that experiment for people who might want to participate on, I guess, either side of that equation. Hey, listeners, Rob here. Just an update that, unfortunately, the hybrid forecasting persuasion tournament applications closed on May 13th, so people won't be able to apply for that one. But if uh, Tetlock starts any other experiments that you can potentially join, then we'll uh, we'll be sure to let you know either on here or on the main 80,000 Hours podcast feed. All right, back to the episode. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's a really, I'm really excited about that project, by the way, because they're trying to forecast things that are harder to forecast further out in the future, more rare and unprecedented things. And I think that's really important. So I'm excited about that project. I was going to say, I often wish I could ask specific questions of experts that I don't know the answer to. And I might be able to do the research, but maybe I wouldn't get the right answer. It'd probably take me a long time. You know, for the nuclear weapons use thing, I wanted to know what are Russia's, how does it work? Uh, that's not a thing I knew. I wanted to, to talk to someone. That's something I, we can kind of do, right? We can just play journalist or call a colleague and ask them that question. But there are specific questions. I think the other value for people of people that have expertise that you may not have as a generalist forecaster is that I want them to look at, at my rationale and, and say, it looks like you missed something. You know, here's a, a thing that you might not, that you didn't think of that everyone in my field knows and you missed it. And that might inform you. I'm often not very interested in their probability estimates of domain experts, not because they're necessarily bad forecasters, just that most of them are. You know, there are some that are good, but just because you know something doesn't mean you're good at estimating the likelihood that things will happen. It's kind of a different skill. So I, I usually want answers to specific questions and sort of sanity checks of my work. I think there was a response to the Semotsvieti forecast by Peter Skovich, um, that was that was useful. 
I don't know if I thought all of his probability ideas were great, but uh, the information in there was a, it was a productive dialogue, I thought. So I do think that there's conversation to be had. Yeah, he's a he's an expert on nuclear weapons in particular, and he was looking at this kind of forecasting effort and saying, here's what I would say as someone who knows a bunch yeah. about this specific area. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I thought that 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 not all of his insights were useful necessarily, but I thought the dialogue was productive. Yeah. Um, in general, I think that the more forecasters can connect with expert knowledge, the better the forecasts are going to be. Yeah. For people who are, yeah, really excited about the kinds of things that we're, that we're talking about, what's kind of a step that they can take to get in, more involved in the, like, in, in the forecasting community? I mean, how I started off is I read Super Forecasting, which I think is a really readable, it's a great book. I think both Dan Gardner and Phil Tetlock are great writers. And so it's a compelling read as well. It doesn't take very long. I think that's very good. And then from that, um, you know, there's the resources out there on becoming a good forecaster are decentralized as a shameless plug. You can watch some right side of maybe podcast and listen to expert forecasters or read one of our forecasts on global guessing. Like they're thousands of words long. Sometimes you might say we go too much in depth, but um, we really like to fully account for our reasoning process. And then after that, I would just jump in and forecast. And there's really sort of two approaches that I've seen people take. One is go for quantity. The approach that Andrew and I took to get better at forecasting is, you know, doing a few predictions, but being very confident in our numbers, knowing all of the inputs that have gone on to it, been able to identify the constraints and the objectives of different actors, identify like what are the signals that we would look to update on this prediction, doing like a pre-mortem. So do your forecast and then say, all right, let's say this forecast was actually really wrong. Well, what does that world look like? And really do a few forecasts and do them very well and then go back and update your forecast and then do like a an in-depth analysis afterwards to sort of check your thinking and then make progress that way. So you can go like the in-depth route or you could just try to make a lot of predictions, go on a metaculous, a good judgment, open reach like an initial probability, use something called base rates, which is the historical occurrence that events have, figure out like your own research, your own method, maybe compare like, oh, the community's at 60%, the base rate's 30%. I did some reading. I can kind of see where the community is, but I think they're a little bit high. And then take like the low end of what the community's saying and do a lot of forecasting that way. But like I do think like practice is you just learn so much by doing forecasting, especially because people have been forecasting forever, right? But this idea of making it into the scientific field is relatively new. And there isn't like a – there are the Ten Commandments of super forecasting out there. But other than that, it, it really is – it is the art in science, right? The art of, of prediction. And so practice painting and figure out like what, what works for you when it comes to forecasting. Robert, uh, do you know of any kind of groups that people could, is, is there a kind of a, a Discord perhaps or some like other experiments other than the one that we, that we just mentioned that people could sign up for? So I don't know of a Discord. I probably wouldn't because <laughs> I'm just too much of an introvert. But there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of, I mean, I would recommend something like Good Judgment Open or something like that or, or Metaculous. But I agree. I think practice is the main thing. And those are the places I would go to talk about forecasting a lot too because they do talk about a lot of it. And 
Sometimes I think this isn't the message of super forecasting at all, but sometimes I think that the the hype about super forecasting suggests that it's some kind of a magic thing that people have some special ability. It's just a skill. It's like learning how to shoot a basketball or something. And maybe some people have more aptitude for it, but it's a thing you can practice and develop your ability and you get more judgment about how to hit the the hoop and what physical motions to go through. And you practice that and you go on Metaculus or something and people will have different ideas than you and tell you why they think your ideas are wrong, hopefully in a nice way. And uh, then you learn something from that and you you agree or you disagree, but you see what they're doing and and you get better at it. I think that's that's the main thing. And there are a lot of resources. There's Clay and Andrew's podcast. There's our podcast. There's a lot of discussions of forecasting in different places on the EA forum. There are plenty of resources out there. You can look at Good Judgments materials where they try to teach you their, they have their training materials that you can check out. So yeah, if you try to do it in a methodical, thoughtful way and practice and read what's out there, you can go a long way, I think. And what I'll also just throw in is like, if possible, forecasting with someone else, I find like my best forecasts are not the ones that I've just done by myself, right? Russia, Ukraine, Mm -hmm. I forecasted with numerous people uh, at numerous times, like for sanity checks and just like working with someone else that has a different viewpoint. They'll raise other things and having that back and forth, I think can be really fun. I, I, I will warn you if you start doing that, then when you're out with friends and they're talking about events, they'll be like, but what's your probability on that? And then they'll be like, Clay, we're just trying to have drinks. We don't have to put a forecast on it. And you're like, no, but you need a Briar score. And then you slowly don't have any friends, but yeah. that's okay. Well, you'll uh, make new off. friends. Yeah, make new friends. But I, friends. I do think, right, trying to forecast with other people is great. And then also, like, there's a lot to be made about updating forecasts, and that's great. But if you lose interest with a question... Don't feel like you have to follow it forever. Like you can just say, I'm making a fuzzy set adjustment. Don't even worry about that score. Like uh, don't necessarily like make your track record. Like the only thing that matters, if you lose interest with a question, like really it's fine. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If I could add to that, I think one of the most exciting things about forecasting is talking to other forecasters and people who are good at it. It's great working on the Good Judgment Inc. forecasting site because I learned so much from the other forecasters. They do great research. So if you can get to be part of one of those communities where people are, are thinking about these things, it's, it's a great way to think about things. And it's very, I mean, I just learned a huge amount from it. Yeah, I think I get it slightly. I mean, I didn't spend that much time on the forecasting platforms, but I say things on Twitter and I think you just you learn so much from the pushback you get. It's not even not not like people being harsh or disagreeing. They're just like, you are not aware of this fact. Here's like a link to this factual information that is incredibly useful and pertinent to what you just said. It's like, well, yeah, one of the fastest ways to correct your, your mistakes is to <laughs> tell them to a loud group. <laughs> Good, That's true, yeah. And then especially <laughs> if you put a number, right? Because you say a thing and then you put mm. a number to it. So then people can quantify what you said, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you can, with your vague verbiage, you could be like, oh, when I said low probability, yeah. I really meant 33% because <laughs> That's low. It's like, wait, no, like what? <laughs> All right. Yeah, we've gotten to the end, but just a final question for both of you is, what's a, what's a prediction that you've made over the last 10 or, well, I guess however many years you've been at this that you're kind of uh, proud of in retrospect? Uh, Clay? Well, obviously Russia, Ukraine, especially not only, I mean, yeah. proud is a very weird way to feel about <laughs> getting something like that correct, but yeah, um, in part because of just like, I, I incorporated international relations theory, which is something that I think actually forecasting as we try to push the the accuracy of our forecast will be very important. And just like 
taking a very different approach, right? Multiple hours a day versus a few hours a week on multiple questions. So getting that right. But I do think as well, last year, Andrew and I on Global Guessing, we correctly forecasted that the U.S. would not rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. And not only did I think we did a very good job of identifying the constraints and all the signals to look out for uh, and how we updated that forecast, but also just we did a pre-mortem analysis, right? Like we at one point we were at 20 percent and it's like, well, what if the probability today was actually 80 percent? Like, can we tell that narrative? Like, can we make a compelling forecast? And then with that new perspective in mind, how should we update our main forecast and and really trying to get like a really good grasp on this? I would say that I, I was quite proud of that forecast and any attempt at forecasting in my personal life has just has, has just been horrible my my <laughs> personal briar score is so bad like i'll give five percent chances to things and they happen all the time or i'll give like nine like it, i am so bad at personal life forecasting so if you ask me a personal life forecast i i will give you one but just do not trust it whatsoever uh robert yeah, it's interesting about my psychology. I realize that the ones that stick in my mind are the ones I'm ashamed of. <laughs> but um, I, I don't feel, on some level, I don't feel that proud of it because I think it should have been obvious. But I sort of knew that COVID was going to happen earlier than other people. And we we're going to lock down and you shouldn't travel and conferences are going to be canceled. And I made a bunch of like personal decisions about that early. And I don't know why everyone didn't know that on some level, but people would react like, why Why aren't you going to that conference? Why aren't you coming to the gym? Um, it's like, well, the obvious pandemic that is beginning. <laughs> right, that's, that's what I thought, but but yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't obvious to it other people. Obvious, so yeah. I remember there was, at one point I was like, oh, we're, you know, everyone's going to have to lock down soon to a friend of mine who works in a coffee shop. And, and his reaction was, what are you talking about? And I was like, how does everyone not know this? So I had this moment of like, I actually I know something that for some reason other people don't. Yeah, I actually, I, I remember walking like along the street to work, I think, in, I don't remember, it was like late February or early March. And I was like, just going to my coffee shop, like talking to the barista as I do like most, most mornings. And I was like, should I be telling all the people here that they're not going to be working in a few weeks? Uh, right. And just feeling like, I don't know how to like have this conversation. <laughs> and it's just like, I, it was an absolutely surreal experience that really like just sticks in my mind of like, <laughs> where, where do I begin <laughs> to yeah, like explain yeah. this? One more forecast I, I, I really liked. Uh, we we got it right, but it, it, it we forecasted the uh, the twenty twenty Ghana presidential election, which if you looked at the polling, like it wasn't necessarily going to be a close one, but it was a really f- interesting forecast because of the events that happened. Words we had a contested election, so we got mm. a I think this was a precursor or a postcursor to the U.S. election, but just like following and forecasting that that election, I, I paid much more attention to Ghana politics. I felt like. I learned a lot about the country, its political systems, and like when all of the election stuff was happening, I was glued to Ghana politics for two to three weeks in a way that if I didn't forecast the election, I wouldn't have followed yeah. it. And so like that was just – I think that's like a nice part about forecasting is you learn a lot about mm. these areas, yeah. but you also you broaden your become knowledge. more yeah. engaged as well. Like you're more engaged and, and, and curious about it and – I think that was really cool. You learn a different kind of thing, too, and a, a sort mm-hmm. of a look at things in a more serious way. If you're not trying to forecast them, you might just pick up random facts, but you have to actually think about it in a methodical way. And, and I agree, forecasting things has, 
I've learned so much more than just being a casual news consumer when I try to forecast a question. And much more diverse as well. Like you, you have to, at least like if you're forecasting like politics in the U.S., if you're left-leaning like myself, like you have to at least understand the other worldview and like understand like how someone reaches it and what that worldview means and, and all of that. If you're going to have, I think, success forecasting, which I think has benefits on being a good citizen as well. My guests today have been Clay Grabard and Robert Denufo. Thanks so much for coming on ADK After Hours, both of you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. If you want to hear more from Robert and Clay, you should definitely check out their podcasts. For Robert, that's non-profits. Uh, that's profits with a PH. And for Clay, that's the right side of maybe, as well as the weekly global guessing podcast. You can find all of those wherever you listen to this show. I mean, I didn't actually check that you can find them in literally all the same places, but that's what everyone always says about other podcasts. You probably can. And things have been quiet on this feed lately, but uh, we're about to ramp up our After Hours content, so keep a lookout for new releases over the next couple of months. All right, audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. And I produce the show. Thanks for listening.